always be the friend that you can call when no one else will call back with the key under the doormat when there's nowhere else to go but you already knew that i could see you when you're hiding oh i can hear you even louder when you're quiet i'm here to help you fight it remember remember when you feel the weight of the world it's weighing on me weighing on me oh when it's raining on you it's raining on me raining on me yeah i'll be leaning on you you're leaning on me leaning on me there's no way to say it better we're stronger together na 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 we're stronger together Trouble dancing all around me Couldn't find my rhythm You were the backbeat Instead of driving from the backseat You were shotgun Sitting right beside me And when I'm falling over my feet Lost in the dark You're the light when I can't see And I don't know where I'd be Without you Without you Cause when you feel the weight of the world It's weighing on me Weighing on me, oh, I've been raining on you. It's raining on me, yeah, raining on me, oh, I'll be leaning on you. You're leaning on me, leaning on me. There's no way to say it better. We're stronger together. There's the music. <laughs> I'm really glad you're here today. I hope that uh, I hope that you have a lot of reasons to celebrate this Mother's Day. I want to wish all of our moms a happy Mother's Day. You know, we're grateful for you. <clears throat> I had a wonderful mom, my wife, my daughter, all moms now. But you know, I'm also grateful for the moms that I wasn't born to, but became moms to me. 
I had a wonderful adopted mom in Charlene Finley. She's gone on to be with the Lord. But she kind of provided some things for me that I didn't get when I was growing up. And then my spiritual director, she is an incredible mom. And uh, that mothering energy, it just seems like no matter how old we get, we never outgrow our need for mothering and fathering. And so God is very kind to bring a family around us to supply what we're lacking. Well, today's message is about connection. It really helps to go on with that idea that mothering really does provide some good setup in life. Uh, but I want to say one thing really quick, Billy, before we get into the message. Spring Creek has a really, a really great opportunity to extend our outreach into Latin America. And I'm talking Central America, the Caribbean, and South America. I was talking to the director of LACRO, who is the regional director for World Vision over all of those regions. And they really love the teaching that's coming out of Spring Creek Church. And in particular, that we address a lot of topics that many churches fail to address, like violence against women and what the scripture teaches about that, about drugs and violence and all kinds of things of this nature. And so they would love for us to begin to uh, give our messages in Spanish to those countries. But what we need are more bilingual people. We've got about half a dozen people who've already signed up for this team. But if you're fluent in both English and Spanish, and you would be willing to help close caption a lot of our messages, we could really have a major impact in Latin America. And in particular, what we want to do is we want to set up leaders there by providing the resources that you see every week on the screen. We want to provide those all in Spanish so that as we teach and train leaders there, they can take that material at no charge whatsoever and then teach and make a difference in their own country. So that's what our plan is. And if you would like to be a part of that, this is not a compensated kind of thing. It's a volunteer kind of thing, but you could make a real difference in helping the message get through all of Latin America. Well, like I say, today we're going to be talking about connecting. If you will, would you just bow your heads with me and let's pray together. Father, thanks so much that we have this wonderful day where we pause as a nation to celebrate moms. Thank you, God, for the influence of great moms. And thank you, Lord, for what you've provided for me in my life. And I know there are many here today who are very grateful and some are grieving and some are wishing and they're just at all different kinds of stages when it comes to moms and the desire to be a mom. So I just pray that you would just meet us all where we are right now with exactly what we're needing. Speak to us during this time we have together in Jesus' name, amen. Now I don't know if you've ever heard this term before, crowded loneliness. It seems like a contradictory term, a crowd and loneliness together, but really there's nothing better to describe what's going on in our society today than the term crowded loneliness. For example, many of us in this room, we have social media accounts, whether you're talking about Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or any number of accounts that are out there, and we have thousands of connections through those various social media accounts. We're surrounded by people, but all these virtual connections don't actually fill us. Instead, it's been said that the internet has made loneliness go viral. What we're discovering today is that virtual connections are not a substitute for face-to-face -face connections. And it's not just that. Crowded loneliness is about being surrounded by people, like even right now in this room. There's a lot of people in this room right now, but being in a room full of a lot of people, rubbing shoulders with a lot of people, doesn't necessarily make us feel less lonely. Did you know that the average person that lives in the Metroplex in a city like Dallas will encounter more people in a given week than the average 17th century villager did in their entire lifetime? 
So get this, over a 100-day period in a city like Dallas, you and I will come into contact with, we'll rub shoulders with about 500 to 2,500 people. But even though we're surrounded by people, in fact, because we're surrounded by people, sometimes that makes us feel even more lonely. Because loneliness is not solved by proximity. Loneliness is solved by being truly present to one another. Cities like Austin, Texas have a thriving economy. It's, it's rich with tech and startups and entrepreneurs. The city's attracting millions of visitors every year. But did you know it's a very young city? The average age in the city of Austin is 32 years old. In, in terms of cities across America, it's one of the younger cities that exists in our country. But did you also know that Austin, Texas ranks as one of the nation's most lonely cities? Cigna, the health group, last year was doing a study in Austin, and this is what they discovered. Generation Z, which is ages 18 to 22, and millennials, age 23 to 37, rated themselves highest on feelings associated with loneliness. Relationships are what the younger generation is supposed to be all about. But the truth is, they're even lonelier than the generations who came before them. So something is happening. And it's happening on a scale and a trend that if it continues unabated, it does not bode well for our future. So that's where I want to begin today, with the desperate need that each and every one of us has for community. So if you were to ask the average Christian to define sin, you would typically get a response like what the Pharisees, or how the Pharisees would respond. They would give a list of sins. They would say, well, you know, it's lying, it's cheating, it's murder, it's theft, it's adultery. And that's a pharisaical definition because it puts all the emphasis on very external, overt behaviors. Well, I, I agree, sin will eventually manifest itself in an overt and external behavior, but that's not the definition of sin. At its heart, sin can be defined as our declaration of independence. In other words, I want to do what I want to do, no matter what God has said, no matter how that affects you. That strain of independence is what's inherent to sin, and it makes, the resist, it makes us resist the call to community. Ever since the first sin, all of us come into this world essentially disconnected from God and from other people. Our struggles are about a disconnected soul. What I'm telling you is beneath all of the sin is a soul that's desperately needing reattachment. There's a marvelous book written by Larry Crabb. He's a longtime Christian thinker, and he's a, a Christian psychologist. It's a book called Connecting. He had this to say. He wrote, it's a state of being, a condition of existence where the deepest part of who we are is vibrantly attached to no one, where we, prof we are profoundly unknown, and they experience neither the thrill of being believed in nor the joy of loving or being loved. I believe that the root of our personal, emotional, and spiritual problems is a lack of connecting. Now, have you ever heard the term ethology? Ethology is the study of the comparison between human and animal behaviors. One example of ethology is the notion of territoriality. In other words, animals like to mark their territory. If you have a dog or a cat, you've already seen this in action, right? They mark their territory. Sometimes they mark you. I mean, you're, you belong to them too. But, but animals like to do this. But humans kind of have a way of marking their territory too. Go into a library and somebody has all their books and papers scattered out. This is my spot. You know, this is my territory. Go into the movies and you'll see somebody, here's my purse or here's my jacket. This seat is saved, obviously. Gangs do this with turfs and nations do this with lines drawn on a map. 
Now, there's no question there's certain boundaries that are good. Individuals should have good boundaries in place, and others should respect those boundaries. But territorialness takes that too far. I become obsessed with what is mine. I think that all that matters are my needs, and as long as I'm taken care of, who cares what happens to everybody else? That attitude is a result of the fall. That is a reflection of our essential brokenness. The desire to cut ourselves off and to make our own little world all to ourselves is a lingering effect of sin. When I think that my responsibilities end with securing my own happiness, when I think like Cain did, that I'm not my brother's keeper, then I have denied the very connections that make me human. So what God is doing, what God is doing in his church, what he's doing in his family is reversing the effects of the fall. Of the fall. He tells us that our responsibilities don't end with us, that the world is not all about me and my needs. We need to be and we understand the need for connection. So bottom line is this, you'll never become fully human by yourself. Humanity happens in community. Spiritually speaking, it'll never just be you and God. I mean, think about it. Even God is a community of persons. The Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost, what we call the Trinity, is a sacred fellowship of persons. We say that God is one divine essence. That's why we say there's only one God. He's one divine essence manifested eternally in three distinct personalities who have fellowship and community with one another. You were created in the image of God, and God is a community of persons. So you and I were made to live in community. That's what's our original design. That's what the church is all about. This is a community first and foremost, not an institution. We come here not to attend. We come here to connect. What I'm saying is, is you and I were really made to do life together. And to go off and do our own thing, well, let's just call that what it is. It's a sign that something's wrong, that something's unhealthy. I mean, think about it. The only thing, the only cell in the human body that does its own thing is the cancer cell. So we have been made for community. I love the way Paul Tripp, he wrote this excellent book called Whiter Than Snow, Meditations on Sin and Mercy. He talks about this very thing. Listen. We were created, we weren't created to be independent, autonomous, or self-sufficient. We were made to live in humble, worshipful, and loving dependency upon God, and in a loving, humble interdependency with others. Our lives were designed to be community projects. Let's hear that again. Our lives were designed to be community projects. Yet the foolishness of sin tells us that we have all we need within ourselves. So we settle for relationships that never go beneath the casual, We defend ourselves when people around us point out a weakness or a wrong. We hold our struggles within, not taking advantage of the resources God has given us. Now, now let me ask you a question. Those of you who've read the Bible before and those of you who've especially read the Gospels. When did Jesus ever go to somebody and say this? I want you to follow me. I'm putting together a band of disciples. I want you to be one of them. But I know you're busy. I know you really don't have time for the small group thing. Besides, dealing with people can be such a problem. You know, I mean, Peter, he talks too much. Thomas is really negative. And Judas, don't even get me started on Judas. They're not normal like you and me. So it's okay for you to follow me offline. Just skip the community part, read the book, attend all the lectures, do the self-study plan. How many times in the Gospels did Jesus offer that to somebody? Never, not once. Instead, what Jesus does when he begins his ministry, the very first thing is he establishes a community. And throughout his entire ministry, he models and taught and he lived and he loved in this sense of community. You simply can't walk with Jesus without being part of a community. But here's a challenging part. Don't settle for the pseudo community of tribalism. 
Now, you might be wondering, what's tribalism? Tribalism is all about forming relationships with those who are most like us. Tribalism is actually a form of fractured community. It's pseudo-community or false community because in tribalism, I only see what I want to see. I only hear what I want to hear. It's about creating echo chambers. Now, this is one of the big downfalls of social media. Today, we can screen out all the voices we don't like. We don't have to listen to people who contradict our views. In fact, what we just do is we say, oh, yeah, they're friends, but I'm going to hide them in my timeline because I don't like what they say and I don't agree with what they say, so I'm not going to hear it and I'm not going to listen to it and I'm not going to be challenged by it. Instead, we're just listening to and fed the streams that echo what we believe. Tribalism is the most common form of community that exists in the world today. And, and what it does is it reinforces within us that the way we see the world is the only right way to see it. This is what people will naturally gravitate toward. This is when singles only want to hang out with singles. It's when young married only want to hang out with young married. It's when people of various ethnicities or social standing only want to be with people most like themselves. Tribalism is a sick parody of community. Now, this past week, we lost John Vanier. That may, name may not mean much to you, but it means a great deal to me. John Vanier is the man who influenced Henry Nouwen. You might recognize Henry Nouwen's name. Wrote dozens of books, some of the most profound books I've ever read in my life. John Bonnier is the man who went to Henry Nouwen while he was teaching at Yale and said, Henry, you're w wasting your life in the Ivy League. Go live among the poor and they'll heal you. And that's what he did. He, he resigned from his prestigious position at Yale and he went to these large communities that John Bonnier started, which are homes filled with people with disabilities and many severe disabilities, and to live with them. And it changed Henry Nouwen's life. Well, John Vanier also wrote the best book on community I've ever read called Community and Growth. I want you to hear what he had to say about this sense of tribalism, though he doesn't use that word. What he said is people very quickly get together with those who are like themselves. We all like to be with someone who pleases us, who shares our ideas, ways of looking at life, and sense of humor. We nourish each other. We flatter each other. You are marvelous. So are you. We're marvelous because we're intelligent and clever. Human friendships can very quickly become a club of mediocrities, enclosed in mutual flattery and approval, preventing people from seeing their inner poverty and wounds. And not just he, you know, there's a sociologist named Robert uh, Bella. He's at the University of California at Berkeley. He said this, lifestyle enclaves, this idea of tribalism, lifestyle enclaves then are self-contained groups in which only those with similar tastes and interests gather together. Lifestyle enclaves are sectarian. They impoverish relationships rather than enrich them. Such a group celebrates the narcissism of similarity. Now, now don't mishear what I'm saying. It's okay to want to be with people who are like you. The problem is, is when you're only with people who are like you. Another term for that is consumer-driven connection. When I make my community people who never challenge me or stretch me or at times make me feel uncomfortable, when I'm with people who don't think differently, believe differently, or have a different experience in life than I have, then I'm really not going to grow. You see, this is what gospel community is supposed to do in all of us, to break down the barriers that we have, that we form, that we are actually forming a countercultural community, the picture of the new humanity where genuine unity is displayed in the midst of radical diversity. Gospel communities are by their very nature diverse. They're diverse in spiritual maturity. They're diverse in terms of stages of life. You have the elderly and families with young children and young professional and single moms. Their diversity, and their diversity is echoed in their ethnicity. They're black, Hispanic, Asian, and white. 
They're diverse in socioeconomic standard. There's the wealthy, there's the poor. There's the white collar, the blue collar, and the collarless. They're, the, they're diverse in terms of political views. There's Republicans and Democrats and independents. That's precisely the kind of community that Jesus formed. In fact, when people look at his original 12, they call them the dirty dozen. They were the original dirty dozen because they're from such different groups. In fact, people have said that each of the disciples represents a different faction within Israel, which would have been naturally at odds with one another. But Jesus knew there was something sacred and special about bringing them together and putting them in community. So when you walk into a church and you find an elderly white woman praying over a black young professional who's babysitting for a Hispanic family with six kids, what does that say to a non-Christian who sees that for the first time? When the poor have an equal standing with the rich, when the Republican and the Democrat can appreciate and respect and truly love one another rather than breaking down every single time they try to talk, what's on display in a community like that? The gospel. That the gospel is bigger than our tribes. That the gospel is bigger than the little tags that we put on our beliefs and our ideas. That Jesus transcends all that. What I'm saying is this, is genuine community doesn't begin with your personal preferences. So consumer or spiritually oriented consumers, they're not going to like it. It's not going to cater to the way you think, so partisan people hate it. It believes that something great happens when we really listen to one another's story, get inside one another's shoes, and really live out the gospel for ourselves. These are gospel-driven values. And believe me, if you ever get a taste of it, you'll want more. So let me share with you the benefits or what I'm calling the gifts of genuine community. The first one is this. It's a place where I uniquely experience the presence of Christ. Now, we looked at this last week, so I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but I want to remind you of what Jesus said. Jesus said, for where two or three come together in my name, there am I with them. And I mentioned to you last week, I asked you, I said, is Jesus with us when we're all alone? We said, yes, he's with us when we're all alone. So what does he mean here? He says, where two or three are gathered, I'm there with them. What Jesus is promising is a special sense of his presence that only happens when believers come together in unity. I shared with you this. This is a quote by Dallas Willard. I just want you to hear the very first line of the quote. Personalities united can contain more of God and sustain the force of his greater presence much better than scattered individuals. So this same dynamic is at work whenever believers come together in community. For those of you who struggle, whether God is really real, whether he cares about you, whether he's present in your life, whether you can sense his presence, I can tell you your problem. You're not spending enough time in community. Because if you spent more time in community, if you want more of God, you need more of God's people. Because when you're with God's people, Jesus promises there's a special sense of his presence that happens when we come together as believers that just doesn't happen when we're alone. That's one gift. You're going to get more of God. Here's a second gift. It's the best safeguard against spiritual drift. Proverbs 27, 17, iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. Now, if you try to sharpen iron with iron, what's going to happen? Sparks are going to fly, right? And so typically, when God is trying to sharpen our life, there's some sparks that might fly from time to time, but he's just preparing us for new things. So one person will sharpen another. Now, in my community, and I've been a part of a community group every week of my life, except for sickness and vacations, for 25 years. And it's a community that started outside of this church, and I've been a part of that. I love it. It saved my life. It saved my ministry. So what I'm talking about, I'm talking about from experience. 
But in my community, it's not unusual for me to confess my weaknesses and my struggles. I'm not Pastor Keith in my community. I'm fellow struggler Keith. I am uh, Pilgrim Keith. I am not the leader of this group. I go in this group so that I can be accountable to others. And so sometimes I'll have to confess. It might be something in my marriage, something where I think I'm all right and Brenda's all wrong, and I've dug in my heels, and I'm determined to wait this out until she acknowledges that fact, what she did, and how right I am. Does that sound familiar to anybody at all? Okay, so my community, what they do is they talk to me about me, not me about Brenda, because I'm the one there, and they're the ones, I'm in relationship with them. They have an obligation to me, not to Brenda. So they talk to me about me. And more often than not, they, after talking to them, I realize I'm the problem. I need to confess to Brenda that I'm trying to control her or the circumstance. I need to seek her forgiveness. And my community affirms that's what I need to do. They commit to pray for me as I go back home to set things right. So the next week we come together, and they say, well, how did the thing go with Brenda? And I might say, well, you know, it ended up being a really busy week. Had a ton of meetings. Brenda was out of town for a couple days. We seemed to just pass each other in the hall, coming and going. It wasn't a good week for conversation. And my community is super understanding and super supportive, and they promise me they're just going to continue to pray for me. Another week passes, and I haven't had the conversation. Now, they don't know that. So they ask me, how did the thing go with Brenda? And it's at that point I realize I need some new friends. I really do. I need new friends <laughs> that aren't going to ask me this stuff all the time. No, I'm kidding. What, what I realize is I have to take action. Those loving, honest questions show me that something else is going on. There's some fear that's keeping me from doing the very thing I know I need to do. I'm letting something stand in the way of reconnecting with my wife. And you see my community because they know me so well. They're perceptive enough to see through my rationalizations, my procrastination, my excuses, my denial of the severity of the problem, and help me confront the lies I'm telling to myself. This is important. And even after 40 years of following Jesus, I still need people in my life to ask me about my spiritual life. Because nobody in this room is smart enough or strong enough or spiritual enough to do life on their own. We need other people. We need people speaking into our life and our spiritual reality. Nobody is above the need for community. So when I hear somebody say, well, all I need is God. I don't need anybody else. I got to tell you, spiritual life is not just about you and God doing your own thing. And even God disagrees with you on that. And if you don't believe that, open your Bible to the very first chapter, or the very first book in the Bible, the book of Genesis, and read, and you see that at the end of the first five days of creation, God said the same thing over and over again. It is good. It was good. It was good, right? I mean, the rivers, the streams, the animals, the sky, the land, the earth, all of that, it was good. And then he makes man, and he says it's not good. Now, okay, it's female voices I hear chuckling right now, but I want to tell you, Adam, at this point, is in a state of perfect intimacy with God. He's committed no sin at this point. And Adam knows and loves God, and God knows and loves Adam, yet God looks at Adam and said, this is not good. Here's his exact words, it is not good for the man to be alone. You say, but he had God, and God says, yeah, he had me. But even though he still has me, he's alone, and I designed him to live in community with others. You and I were created for community. Frankly, there is no such thing as a Christian who lives in isolation from the body. So the third gift that we're going to receive in community, it's the one place where it's safe to take off our mask. So continuing on in the Genesis story, we know by Genesis 3, there's a fall. And in the fall, before the fall, it says they were naked and not ashamed. 
Now, that's not just a fashion statement. It's a statement about a spiritual reality that they were completely exposed. They were completely vulnerable. They were completely open. They had nothing to hide. They were naked and unashamed. It's a great place to be until they sin. But with the fall came shame, and with shame came hiding. This is what Adam says to God in Genesis 3. I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid, so I hid. So the human race has been hiding ever since. Now, I, got, I gave my life to Christ in a tiny church in rural Ohio, in Mansfield, Ohio. And this church was a small church, about 150 people. So everybody knew everybody else. You knew their dogs, their cats. Everybody knew everybody's business. Everybody came in and they had their pew, you know, they would sit in their pew, that was their spot. If you were a visitor and you sat in their pew, they might actually come to you and say, this is my pew, you need to move, you know, and you'd have to move your place. I mean, in some ways it was really crazy, but, you know, before service, everybody sit around, smiles pasted on their face. We talk about, you know, uh, the football and, and baseball and we talk about uh, our lives and the week and everybody pasted on these smiley faces. And I can remember when all of that broke because there was a young man about two years younger than me. His name was Dwight. And Dwight was having some really big problems in his life. And because we were such a surfacey kind of church, he never felt real enough or vulnerable enough to share any of his sexual struggles with anybody. And one morning, Dwight decided to try to take his life. Thank God he was unsuccessful. But I saw that church break apart like I'd never seen before. I saw people who always had the smile pasted on their face acting in ways I'd never seen them act before. They're angry. They were full of blame. It was caustic. They were demanding answers. Here's what I know. You can only be loved to the extent that you're known. As long as there's stuff in your life that you're keeping hidden from others, you're always going to question people's love for you because you're going to say to yourself, but you don't know it all. If you knew what I knew about myself, if you knew all my secrets, if you knew what I'm hiding right now, you probably wouldn't love me the way you say me lo you love me. You can only be loved to the extent that you know. And it, it takes a while to build those kind of relationships. You've got to build trust. You've got to build trust where you can go deep with people. But you need people in your life that you can go deep with. And let me say to the men in this room, what's really common with men was really true of my life before I found community is I would give to all kinds of men. I'd have all these superficial friendships, you know, fishing buddies, hiking buddies, camping buddies, and they'd all get a tiny piece of me, but nobody ever got the whole deal. Nobody ever heard everything. And that wasn't good for me, and it wasn't good for relationships. I love this verse. I'm really glad it made it into the pages of the Bible. Job 6.14, a despairing man should have the devotion of his friends, even though he forsakes the fear of the Almighty. Do you have friends that come what may, you know are going to be there for you? Even if you say, I'm not sure I believe anymore. Do you have people that you know have made such a commitment to you for your good and your growth, and they're never going to throw you away? If you don't have those kind of relationships, those relationships are possible, but they never just happen. They happen with intentionality. They happen with commitment. You know, the truth is, everybody in this room, you're going to go through something in your life at some point where there's no easy answers and sometimes when there's no answers at all. And it's at a point like that that you're going to discover who your real friends are. Because what's going to happen is some people can't stand to sit with somebody whose problems are not going to go, over, go away overnight. And they're going to try to fix you and they're going to solve it. And, and when it doesn't fix or solve overnight... They're just going to create distance. I know for me, you know, when I was going through my midlife shift, they say on average it takes a male about three to five years to go through that time. It's a time of real unknowing. 
things aren't working for you the way they used to work. You're trying to figure out, you know, I've had the success, but how does my life really matter? Is it really significant? And you're trying to work through all these questions, and it is super duper challenging. And I discovered really quickly who my real friends were because my real friends could just sit with me in the unknowing. And my, my false friends, they couldn't. So one more gift I want to tell you about in community. It's the place where we learn to love as Jesus loved. This is a great verse. Jesus was once asked what was the greatest commandment. He couldn't answer with just one. This is what he said. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. What Jesus is saying here, it's not enough to just to love God. It's not enough just to be spiritual. It's not enough to be religious, to go to church, to live for your higher power. Those are good things in and of themselves, but it doesn't just cut it. That's not enough. The end goal of life for Jesus is to love God and love others. And you can't do one without the other. You have to have both. So, you know, when people ask, you know, I mean, how do you assess somebody's attitude, devotion, relationship to God? If I tell you I love God with all my heart, how do you know that? You can't know that, and I can't know that. But what Jesus said is this. Jesus says you can really find out the measure of your love for God, and it's how well you're loving others. So let's unpack this second commandment to get the, at the heart of what Jesus is saying. Jesus is telling to love others as we love ourselves. So he begins with this inborn, deep-defining human trait, our love for ourselves. This is a given. He doesn't have to command it. He just assumes it. All of us have this powerful inclination for self-preservation and self-fulfillment. I mean, let's face it. Everybody wants to be happy. Everyone wants to live with a sense of satisfaction. You want food for yourself. You want clothes for yourself. You want a place to live for yourself. You want protection against violence for yourself. You want, you want a meaningful and pleasant activity to fill your day. You want friends to spend, come and spend time with you. You want your life to count in some way. Self-love is this longing to diminish pain and increase happiness. Everybody wants this. And that's where Jesus starts. Love others as you love yourself. Now, some people will object to that and say, well, pastor, I don't even like myself. But I want to tell you something. Even that belief is based on the fundamental fact that you want life to be different. You desire for things to be better. You've just resigned in your spirit that they won't. So Jesus says, I know this about you because it's true of all people. You didn't have to learn it. It comes with being human. My father made you this way. In and of itself, it's good. So to hunger for food, not bad. To want to be warm in the winter is not evil. To want to be safe in a crisis is not selfish. To want to be healthy during a plague is not a wrong thing. To want to be liked by others is not bad. But he says, love others as you love yourself. So as you long for those things in your life, long for them in the life of your neighbor. Long for that same happiness. Long for that same hunger to be filled. Long for that sense of security. The same things you want for you, want for them as well. Treat others the way you want to be treated. The golden rule, right? So look at this principle. This is what Jesus is teaching. Make yourself seeking the measure of your self-giving. And this is radical. I mean, I really want you to let this sink in for a minute. This commandment demands that I get inside the skin and inside the shoes of someone else and now feel for that person the same things that I desire for myself. It's staggering. It's a kind of love that doesn't happen naturally. It requires something powerful, earth-shaking to happen in us for that to happen. So when Jesus says to love our neighbors as we love ourselves, that word as is also very radical. 
Because it means if you're energetic in pursuing your own happiness, be energetic in pursuing the happiness of your neighbor. If you're creative in pursuing your own welfare, be creative in pursuing your, uh, your neighbor's welfare. In other words, Jesus is not just saying, seek for your neighbor the same things you seek for yourself, but seek it in the same way, with the same zeal and energy and creativity and resources. Make your self-seeking the measure of your self-giving. Now, when we really let this sink in, when we hear what Jesus is saying in the second commandment, the first feeling that arises in our heart is fear. This feels threatening, doesn't it? It feels overwhelming because we think if I take seriously Jesus' command to love others, then that means what I hear is I don't love myself anymore. That's what it feels like. We fear that if we follow Jesus in this command and we really devote ourselves to pursuing the happiness of others, then my own happiness takes a back seat. So the command to love other people as I love myself feels like a threat to my own self-love. So this is why it's so important that we understand the first commandment is necessary to fulfill the second. Now you might remember last week I told you that when it comes to spiritual transformation, there's three spheres of growth. To love God, to love one another, to love our neighbor. This is to grow, to connect, to serve. And I mentioned to you that what God does when he wants to transform us is he drops us in these loving environments to transform our heart so that we can go out and transform the world. But it's the first commandment, to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength that makes the second commandment doable, that makes it no longer suicide of my own happiness. And what I'm saying is this, to love God with all of your heart means to find in God a satisfaction so profound that it fills your entire heart. To seek God with all of your soul means to allow him in to heal up all the cracks and all the brokenness and all the fear in all the very edges of our soul. To love God with all of our minds means to seek him as our satisfaction and wisdom and insight to guide me through the complexity of choices and opportunities that life presents to you. So I take all of my self-love, my longing for joy and hope and security and fulfillment and significance... And I focus that on God so that he is the fulfillment of it all. And when that happens, what happens is self-love is not canceled, it's transformed. I find myself having new capacities I never knew I had. I find myself able to love in ways I never dreamed being able to love because I no longer fear that if I give to you, I end up empty. Because God has already filled me so completely, I'm giving out of that abundance. There's this wonderful Catholic social worker, her name was Dorothy Day. She had this to say, it reflects the same thing Jesus is saying, I really only love God as much as I love the person I love the least. Same reality. So are there examples of this really radical relational love? In the Bible, do we find that? I mean, apart from Jesus, do we find that? And I say, yeah, there is. There's this apostle, and he's called the apostle of love. You know who I'm talking about? John. John is called the apostle of love. But if you study his appearances in the Bible, there's nothing that's in his life that suggests that he would ever become this person who's consumed by love. In fact, I was looking at the three major emphasis, the three times that we get a good glimpse into his story. The first one is this. First encounter we have of John, he, he, comes, he comes to Jesus and he has seen somebody down the street who's casting out demons. And he's not one of the 12. He doesn't even go to their church. And John says, hey, let's shut down his ministry. Now, let me just ask you, does that sound like a very loving thing to do? 
No, it's not. Because Jesus says to him, he who is not against us is for us. John is not acting very loving. Second time. Second time, this is Mark chapter 10. John comes with his brother James to Jesus and says, hey, you know, we love this idea of the kingdom. And we really love the idea of you being king. And we were just thinking, being objective, looking at all the 12, we think that me and my brother ought to be on your right and left hand. In other words, they want to be MVPs and the game hasn't even started. It's not even halftime yet. They're just coveting the best positions in the kingdom. Now, does that sound very loving to you? No, it doesn't. It sounds like ambition that eclipses love. But Mark chapter, uh, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 9. John sees that the Samaritans have rejected Jesus. So he goes to Jesus and says, Jesus, do you remember what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? He said, that ash and a flash thing, let's do that again. Let's incinerate them till they glow. You know, kill them all, let God sort them out. Now, is that very loving? No, in fact, this is how they got the nickname, the Sons of Thunder, because they just think we ought to call thunder down on everybody that doesn't disagree with us or doesn't agree with us. That's John. But, you know, he writes these books at the very end of our New Testament. So the last five books, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Jude, Revelation, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, tiny books, they comprise 2% of the teaching of the New Testament. Do you know that they have 20% of the references of love in the gospel or in the books of 1st, 2nd, 3rd John? This guy has become consumed by love. And not just that, he's so transformed by love that he writes one of the gospels, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, that's his gospel. And John is no longer concerned about being the MVP. He doesn't even mention himself by name in this book. Instead, remember what he calls himself? I'm the disciple whom Jesus loved. You know what happened with John? John found his identity in being loved by God. And once he found his identity in being loved by God, he was able to give away love like he never had before. That's what we need. We need this desperate encounter with God where that he becomes the fulfillment of our heart, our soul, and our mind. And when he does that, then as we gather together in community, all of the tribal differences that we have, all of our stripes, all the things where we differentiate ourselves from everybody else, that doesn't really matter because Jesus is our great uniter. I'm here to tell you, you know, we've got a community group experiment going on right now. It's not too late to join. All we're doing is we're gathering in homes. We have a video where that Josh and I are sitting together and we're talking about reflections on the message where you can just kind of talk, go further, talk about the challenges, talk about even what you disagree with. I mean, it's great. You can come together in community and talk about these things. If you're not a part of a community group, go online this afternoon. You'd sign up. It's really easy. Show up at a group this week. It'll be the best investment you make in your spiritual growth. I'm so glad you're here. I hope you enjoy your day together. And I do pray. You don't have to, you know, I, 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 you don't have to have a community group here. Your community group can be people that you work with. It, it can be people that are in your neighborhood. It can be longtime Christian friends you have that go to other churches. But find community. You were made to do life in community. And in community, we come to know the fullness of the love of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this beautiful day. And thank you, God, for all those that are here. I pray that you'd use this message in all of our lives. To me, God, it was a wake-up call that I needed community. I desperately needed it. And it has been such an amazing and healing experience in my life. I long for other people to have the same thing. So God, I pray that you give somebody the courage to move against their fears, the fears of, you know, that cause us to isolate, the fear that makes me think that if I give to others, I won't have enough for me.
for me, that God, we'd move away from those fears and we would trust God in your goodness and your love and what you're pouring into our life, that it's more than enough, not just for our needs, but for the needs of others as well. We thank you and we praise you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless and happy Mother's Day.